that's interesting. All right. We have Esha Chabra on the show today. And thank you so much, Esha. Um, we've been knowing uh, of each other now for uh, several years. Um, we were just uh, talking about um, connecting in Los Angeles uh, several years ago at, uh, I believe that was the Heart Series. So mm -hmm. uh, welcome to the show. And for the listeners that do not know you, maybe you can give a little bit of background, maybe explain uh, you know, how you got where you are and um, everything like that. Sure. Yeah, it was really nice to, to bump into you at that conference almost two or three years ago now. So I have been working as a writer and as a journalist covering the space of sustainability and mission-driven companies and environmental issues for a decade now. And I started as a freelance journalist and that's evolved into a really fruitful career that now includes doing editorial content for companies and a variety of editorial projects. Um, I recently just completed a book with Patagonia that was due to come out this year, but it will come out next year. And it's called Working to Restore and it's about 30 plus companies around the world that are really using their business models to address different, whether it's, uh, you know, healthcare, environmental issues, sustainability and fashion, circular economy, you know, various things that are really going to propel us forward. So um, that's been a really fun ongoing project for the last few years. But yes, basically a career in, in storytelling. That's awesome. Um... So I, I can either go two ways here. I guess I was going to ask you about like your childhood and growing up, but I am interested to know a little bit about um, how the book came about. Um, so let's start with uh, let's start with the childhood. Maybe like, were you writing, you know, since you know day one, or like, what what was kind of your background? No, I mean to be honest, in high school, I think English was my weakest subject. Um, I was interested in the liberal arts. I was interested in history. I thought I would do something that was within the political realm. Um, this was, you know, to date myself now, this was the late 90s and I was really into television journalism as well. At the time, uh, CNN was kind of the place where everybody got their news from. So I was interested in journalism, but I was interested more in political journalism and I was not a very good writer. For me, the inflection point of turning into a writer was really at college. I went to Georgetown, not too far from where you're situated in DC. And I had a very kind and thoughtful professor who basically said, I think you can write. You have to work a little hard at it, but like, I think you could write and you should consider doing an English major. And I thought he was crazy for suggesting that I was going to do a political science and history um, double major. So I decided to take on that challenge and it was through my years in college and having a couple professors who were really encouraging and then finally having a professor um, who I will never forget, Alec Klein, who was a journalist at the Washington Post at the time and also teaching classes in the evening at Georgetown, um, who did a class that was really fun. It was like, you know, completely hands-on. When you go to college, you do a lot of reading and writing and sitting in your dorm and sitting in the library, but his was like, go in the field, here's a story, investigate, write something, like practice what you might do one day kind of thing. Um, and he was really encouraging and said that, you know, you could have a career as a writer, as a print journalist, if you wanted to. Um, so that was my first really foray into it. And, you know, it's been like with anything else in life, right? The more you do it, the better you get at it. So when I look back at my writing, you know, 10 years ago, it, it had its flaws for sure. Um, and it gets better and it gets easier and faster as you do it more and more. So yeah, not quite what I had planned, sort of fell into it. Love that. What was like your first, uh, like, did you have, like, what was like first opportunity out of college? 
Yeah, so I actually worked when I was a senior at Georgetown in different newsrooms. So one was um, at the time CBS Evening News was with Katie Couric and she had left the morning show and was doing the evening show instead. So I worked there just as an assistant and you know did all kinds of random jobs around um, the bureau. And then uh, the next semester I worked at CNN and at the time I was assigned to a reporter that was actually based in the Middle East. We were fighting the Iraq war in those days and he was doing reporting from Kuwait and from the border and so we would get footage from him and it was my job to help the producer edit that footage and kind of um, put together a story and a narrative for a long format documentary that they were putting together so i got some really good insight into working in you know newsrooms and being around journalists that i had respected and seen on television um but interesting enough it was also those experiences that made me realize i didn't want to do that long term. I didn't want to sit in a newsroom in DC. And I also realized that television news was turning into a slightly different beast. And it's kind of what it's, you know, I think evolved into now. Um, so I was a senior and I was graduating and I had this advisor at my residence, um, who was just a lovely gentleman. And he told me about Rotary International and I had never heard of this organization. I'm like, what is this thing? Um, so he said, there's a fellowship through that that young people can get and they will allow you to go study and do a master's program in different parts of the world. Um, and they would pay for your studies as long as you're involved with the organization in some way. So Rotary is really an incredible organization. It's very connected actually to this whole um, impact sector in the sense that they do a lot of humanitarian work. And you know the image of Rotary is that it's mostly older folks sitting around having lunch at a lovely country club once a week kind of thing. Um, but the reality is that you know they really fund some incredible work. So uh, they had a project at the time that they were deeply involved and they still are, they're still committed to this with the WHO, UNICEF, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which was to eradicate polio. And so I had an opportunity to not only apply for that fellowship and get it to do my master's in London at the LSC, but also to go on one of these trips and see how they were doing the public health work on the ground. And that really gave me a love for journalism again, because I started freelancing those stories as I was doing my studies. Um, and that made me kind of really build this print career because I was just freelancing to where anybody that would take it, I would be happy to send the stories. And it reminded me that we could write about stories that actually I felt like mattered. Um, and I think sometimes in the political cycle, we get so stuck in just very, you know, details that are not important and the bigger picture gets lost. And I think I had become a little bit tired of that working in political news. Um, and so for me, it was really nice to be on the ground and seeing how public health work was being done at the very grassroots level. So did you go to London for this yeah. fellowship? Kind of <clears throat> talk about that uh, experience. Because you're, you're originally East Coast. Are you from the East Coast? Or? No, so I'm originally from the West Coast. Um, I grew up in Southern California, but I was born in India. Uh, my parents are immigrants. I'm a first generation immigrant. Um, I came when I was a little kid. And so I did move to London for my master's and it was a lovely uh, one and a half year master's. They like to do things a little bit more condensed over there in the UK. Um, but in the process, there was some time before I started my master's that Rotary was organizing these trips and they would happen every year of Rotarians that wanted to go volunteer for some time in the field. 
and they were taking place in two taking place in two countries in India and Nigeria. So the next opportunity for me was to go to India, and it just kind of worked out that you know I was from India, I spoke the language, I knew the culture, kind of thing. Um, so I went with a team of American Rotarians and we did go volunteer and we vaccinated children. We went and spent time with public health workers in the field. And most of the work they were doing was outside of Delhi. And it was in a state called Uttar Pradesh, which is like a massive state in India in terms of population. It's, um, you know, almost 300 million people, I believe. I don't wow. know what the numbers are. So it's like the population of the United States, basically yeah. in one state. Um, and it's sadly also an area where there is a lot of need, um, especially on sanitation and public health and these kinds of things. So um, the way the polio campaign would work is that people would set up, the public health workers would set up the actual vaccination booth, as you would say, in like a little corner shop, you know, so the corner shop might be selling all the basic things that you need in life kind of thing. Um, from snacks to chocolate to, you know, topping up your mobile phone or whatever it is. And they would, the public health workers would just go there. And there was typically one from UNICEF and one from WHO. And they had the vaccine in a cold case and um, they would disseminate the vaccine there. And so the local health workers would help draw out the kids. The kids would come there and um, it was a oral vaccine. So you did two drops. Um, so it was really easy. Also, anybody could do it. You didn't have to be a certified, you know, um, professional in the healthcare industry to do it. So us volunteers would also do that. And that was really inspiring because, um, you know, now going through the pandemic and seeing the importance of public health issues, it's a really phenomenal thing that, you know, we've gotten close to eradicating polio from the planet and there are very few diseases that we can point to to do that. So at the time, India was having quite a few polio cases. The numbers have gone down since then. They've gone years without having any. Um, so that was a really incredible experience. And that was, you know, around 2009, 2010. So long time back now. Yeah, no, that's fantastic work. Um, so you go to London and then you kind of go to India and then yeah. what's next for you? How do you sort of uh, transition from that experience? Being in the heart of London um, at that time, it was an interesting place to be to do your master's. So um, just up the street from the campus was this office. Um, it's a consultancy firm out of London called Volance. And it was started by a Georgetown alum who's sadly no longer with us, she passed away. Um, but they were focused on CSR. That was the term in those days, right? Corporate social responsibility. Um, and so they were working with a lot of different companies on these kind of initiatives. And at that time, I would call them initiatives. They were really seen as tangential to the main core of your business. So I was introduced to that firm. I worked with them. I became very involved in these issues of, you know, how does a business play a role in the solution? And that became the focus of not only what I ended up writing um, my dissertation on, but also like, you know, just exploring personally and, and professionally reading books and educating myself on it. Um, Nicholas Kristof was writing columns at the time that were on these topics. Um, Kiva as an organization that had specialized in microfinance had really come to the forefront and I'd worked with them and volunteered my time with them a little bit as well. So that really introduced me to this world that we call today, um, you know, the impact sector. And I started writing again, just doing freelance work in addition to what I was doing, my studies, um, and it was really there that I realized that I wanted to write and that I could I could do that as, as a profession. It would be tough um, in the early days because you have to subsidize your income with other revenue streams, right? But you could do it. 
Um, and I was fortunate that I had good mentors and I was fortunate that people wanted to pick up my work and publish it. So that's how I really jumped into it. And that was, you know, around 2011, 2012, I said, okay, I think this is what I want to do. I want to be in this sector. What can I do here? Nice. And so you talked about kind of like freelancing and kind of making it happen. I mean, how does that look like, like, how did you know what to do, I guess, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, like, um, you know, maybe talk through like, you know, kind of the, the grind of that. It is very entrepreneurial and it is really hard and you have to be really tenacious. And I think it is really important to have a good mentor. So like, for example, if you wanna be in journalism, right? You know, find an experienced journalist that's willing to kind of guide you. And that'll happen naturally by just having conversations with people and asking people like, hey, can I get 15, 20 minutes of your time to just get some advice, um, some professional advice. And I did, I reached out to Georgetown alumni, I reached out to people that I had kind of connected with in my master's program through the Rotary Network. And I was just absorbing information. I mean, at that time, I think I was really going to a lot of different uh, events and just meeting people and kind of broadening my so-called network. Um, in this process, I met David Bornstein, who is a lovely journalist and a very kind human being. And he was looking at solutions journalism at the time, and he hadn't created the solutions journalism network yet. He had a blog in those days. And he gave me the opportunity to not only write on that site, but also then um, edit the site and manage the site for a little while. And that was a really good sort of baby step because it let you practice what you wanna do on a platform that wasn't massive. So you weren't being scrutinized heavily, um, but it was giving you the basic skill sets that you needed as you would get further and further into your career. So yeah, and I mean, tenacity is a big part of it. Like if you're doing anything, I think entrepreneurial, whether it's journalistic or not, you have to follow up with people. You have to just keep persisting and you know, find a kind and polite way to do it so you don't seem like you're a nag. Um, but the tenacity part of it, I think is essential. No, that's perfect. And so I guess walk me through what happens from kind of that time to like when you're doing it, I mean, you're doing a book deal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was years later. And I had thought about doing a book. I talked to a few different publishers as well. And it was interesting to me that the way book deals were being done for first time authors. It's not something that's lucrative. It's not going to make you loads of money. You do it because you're passionate about it kind of thing. Um, it can be a lovely stepping stone in your career, obviously. But, um, you know, I talked with a few different, uh, one was an academic uh, university press and another one was a traditional publishing company um, and it wasn't quite materializing in the right way. And then I was uh, connected to the editor of Patagonia Books, Carla Olson, just who's a, a delightful human being and has a whole uh, career and background in publishing. And it just connected in a way that I think because it's a, it's a very non-traditional choice to, to publish this kind of a book with a company um, because it's not promotional. They're not marketing themselves. In fact, they gave me a lot of journalistic freedom to write about what I wanted to write about. Um, but I think because they understood the topic, they cared about it, you know? At that time, I felt like every conversation I was having with editors, um, I was still trying to convince them that this is gonna be a thing. This is gonna be relevant five years down the road, 10 years down the road, folks. Um, people hadn't quite gotten it. And I think the stories were still more about the developing world, more about what was happening in emerging markets as they refer to them, um, and less about looking around what was happening everywhere, even in, in the States, even in, in Europe. Like, 
people were not paying attention to topics like food waste or, you know, recycling waste products and circular fashion and things like that. So when I talked to Patagonia, um, they just got it immediately and they greenlighted it very quickly after that. And that was also really nice to work with an organization that was that efficient, you know, like they liked something, they said like, yes, let's do it. Um, and then I got some grant money to be able to fund all the travel that was required for it. And that took about a year, year and a half to do all the reporting because we narrowed it down to about three dozen companies that we wanted to include in this book. And so it's organized in different chapters that are different topics that are connected to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So we have a chapter that's on soil, we have a chapter that's on plastic waste, we have a chapter that's on health, another one that's on finance. Um, and these are all sort of broader themes in the UN SDGs. And I met with all the companies pretty much. I'm trying to think if there's any that I didn't meet with in person. And that took time, that took travel. And then we did the editorial process and then um, we were scheduled to have it come out this summer, but then we postponed it because it didn't seem right with the pandemic going on. So it will come out next year. But I think this topic of better business is, is not going away anytime soon. I mean, and, um, and that's interesting. So is it self-published or is it, are you technically with a- uh, With Patagonia. Patagonia yes. Because they have their own publishing arm. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, many people don't know this. Like Patagonia has its own publishing entity, and they've published a lot of books that are in the outdoor space that are about climbing and about like let my sports. people go surfing. Was that like right? Exactly. So Yvonne's um, book, Let My People Go Surfing, and then he's done a couple others, Responsible Business um, as a follow-up. And Melinda's written a book as well about sort of work-life balance um, and having children in the workplace. These have all come out of their publishing arm. And it is a self-sustaining you know, entity within Patagonia. So Patagonia has a lot of different arms. You learn, you know, they've got food, they've got books, they've got the, the retail operations with apparel. So they have a lot of different things going on and film. And tea. So how do we get to tea? So, I mean, the thing that I've learned in doing all of this is that for the last 10, 12 years, I was traveling, I was getting opportunities to go tell stories from the field. I spent a lot of time in you know, in Asia and just getting to see these stories firsthand of supply chain. It's one thing when we sit here and we talk about supply chain and then, you know, you go there and you see how clothes are being manufactured for a lot of big companies. You see how raw materials are being sourced for the coffee you drink, the chocolate you eat, all of that. Um, and a lot of it um, was smallholder farms and agriculture that I was writing about and I was visiting and I was writing about women's issues and that's very connected to agriculture because a lot of agriculture in the world is done by women, which we don't realize. Um, and so that made me realize a couple of things. One was that climate change was happening and we had to do something about it. Um, agriculture and food is a big part of that in terms of the way we farm, what we choose to farm, uh, the land that we occupy, the people that have rights to that land, all of that has to do with climate change. Um, and I was learning more and more about how you know, health and environment were connected. So I started my career in public health in a way, learning about this uh, polio vaccine campaign. But really when you go to these communities, you learn that there's so many other environmental issues that are going on. And that really does contribute to overall health. 
So for me, all of that was coming together. And then I met with a friend of mine who had had a similar career working for different entities, though kind of more of an entrepreneur in the sense that she was working within organizations. Um, and she had been at Ashoka and she had been at Clinton Global Initiative and she'd been at the White House and doing a variety of different social initiatives. And she said to me, she'd like to have a tea company. Um, so we met in San Francisco where she was living at the time and just kind of threw this idea out there. And I didn't really honestly think about ever having a tea company specifically, but what it did embody for me was I was realizing as much fun as it was to write about these issues from the sidelines, I also wanted to be a part of a solution. And I wanted to kind of get my hands dirty and build something. Um, and I felt like I had this amazing, you know, resource. I'd gone to these places, I'd met these people, I knew them firsthand. So I didn't need to go through distributors or wholesalers or, you know, find middlemen. I could just contact the folks on the ground directly. Um, so that's how we built the idea for Alea T. Alea is the second half of, of Himalaya. And that was an area that I had traveled a lot and spent a lot of time in the foothills of the Himalayas. And you know, just seeing the transition as well, like the local farmers really want to do organic farming. There's a state in India, um, Sikkim, that is the first state to go organic in the world. So, I mean, this basically local government system has decided that they're going to do entirely organic, which was phenomenal. And that's created now a domino effect. So a lot of the regions around it are also doing organic farming. Um, and so all of that, I think, contributed to how do we build a small business um, that has these values? And also, we didn't want to go raise money. We didn't want to turn it into like some big entity. We just wanted to do something that we felt good about in every aspect um, of the business. So that's how it's turned into tea uh, as well. That's fantastic. And so tell me a little bit about the tea itself. Like um, what's going on? Like are you selling it on the website? Are you selling it um, other channels? Like break it down. Sure. So I've got um, a couple of bags here so you can see what it looks like. Um, so we have, this is Dulci. This is Assam and ginger, which is kind of our take on chai. And um, here's a mint. And I don't have a, a Darjeeling bag in front of me, but a lot of our tea comes from the area of Darjeeling, which is really famous for like the champagne of teas. They produce the best quality tea in the world. Um, so the idea behind the tea company, and you'll meet Smita in a second and she'll tell you a little bit more about this, is that, so all of it is loose leaf. We don't have tea bags. Um, and there's a reason for this is that, you know, growing up drinking tea, we often had it loose. It was made uh, every time fresh. And so this idea that you would take five minutes, have a cup of tea and not rush it and not just, you know, duck a tea bag in hot water kind of thing. We wanted to introduce that to folks. Incidentally, when we launched last fall, there was a BBC story that came out that talked about plastics in tea bags. And it just coincided with our launch, which worked out really in our favor in some ways, but it illuminated this issue that even I as a tea drinker for years did not know about, which is that, you know, the sachets that look like paper, they do have plastic inside them. And there's this great um, series running on the BBC right now called War on Plastic. And they actually look into this specifically with tea. Um, so we were not aware of this to the extent of how you know severe it was in the tea industry that so many of these brands were using these sachets and the plastic then when you put it in hot water goes into your tea so you're drinking microplastics you know and as we all know 
we're all eating like supposedly a credit card of plastic a week, right? So, um, so loose leaf tea was important to us. We wanted to get the best quality tea, fresh tea, straight from the estates, no middlemen. So the money goes directly to them. Um, working only with estates that had really strong environmental practices and social practices. Um, and then the other thing that's really interesting, which we can talk about further, is that this packaging is actually compostable. So, you know, I had interviewed a lot of companies and a lot of uh, founders and heard their struggles with packaging. And then it was sort of my turn to go down that road. So for nine months, I think we just spoke to so many different um, packaging suppliers. It's very hard, incidentally, to get a stand-up pouch with a zipper that is compostable um, at a price that a small business can afford also. Um, so that's the other thing is from the ink to the labels to even the adhesive that's on the label, the bag, everything, the entire thing is compostable. And we've actually given it to a local municipal um, unit here in Southern California this summer. And they're kind of testing it out for us in terms of the exact time it takes to break down. We know that it's roughly 90 days, but we want to learn a little bit more about it. So I think that was another thing was like, how do we do plastic free packaging? Um, so that's Alea in a nutshell, but um, you know we can talk a little bit more about that with Smita. Great. Well, if you want to bring her on in, we can. Uh, Great. I will do that. I will just text her. So while that's happening, this episode is brought to you by Hamilton Perkins Collection. We are bags and accessories from Recycled Materials. Um, we have been working on our website. So if you're listening to this, check out our website. Check out our social media. Um, get in touch. And um, we'll go from there. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'll look for her here in the uh, waiting room. So while that's coming up, um, <clears throat> So how has the, you know, how has the pandemic kind of affected you the most, I guess? Uh, like, Personally uh, or professionally? Both. Uh, yeah, professionally or in both. I mean, that's fine. Um, I think, you know, somebody who travels so much for their work, uh, that's obviously been a big change because it's come to a halt. Um, but I think professionally, because the last few years I've been doing mostly editorial work for companies, I've been able to work remotely, which is really great. So it's not hampered that. But in terms of tea, um, the, the thing that's been really interesting for us is that when this whole thing started, um, there's Smita. Hi, sorry. Hi. Just adjusting with the Zoom app. No, no, no. We were just <laughs> discussing how has the pandemic affected us? Um, so, you know, when we started uh, doing this last year, Hamilton, I mean, we were really kind of early into this business. We didn't realize that as we turned the corner into 2020, we were gonna deal with a pandemic. One of the advantages though, of working directly with the estates and the farmers is that we can literally send them a WhatsApp message and communicate with them directly. So we can kind of figure out supply chain issues. Um, I mean, that said, it has slowed down things much like everywhere in the world in terms of shipping and freight and all of that has changed and we've had to adapt with that. So these are all good learnings and especially to have them this early in the business so that we can be prepared down the road. <laughs> 
you can make it through this, you can make it through anything. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, like Asha said, uh, well, Hamilton won, nice to meet you. Nice um, to meet you as well, thank you for doing that. See you, and I feel like it's been this very weird, um, I mean, I'm sh I think everyone is feeling weird and disoriented, like most of the time in this world, <laughs> but um, there's this, sort of been this weird like dichotomy between like a lot of people are having more time at home, right? And wanting to like wean off alcohol and have a little bit more downtime or alone time um, and want to wean off caffeine, uh, like really intense caffeine from coffee. So people are drinking lots of tea, but you know, in one hand we have like a good demand and on the other hand, the logistics around getting it from, from India has been kind of, you know, unpredictable um, to say the least. It's been an interesting last few months. <laughs> and and Smita, just for the listeners, um, why don't you introduce yourself and kind of your background and, um, you know, maybe just, you know, like start with, you know, like uh, how did you, you know, just who are you? What do you do? Who am I? Well, um, so <laughs> I can go on. Um, so Esha and I have known each other for seven or eight years now. Um, we both met when we were doing a little bit of different type of work. Um, I've worked in the social impact and government NGO world for the last 10 years. So um, originally left college and like moved to DC the day after I graduated college. Um, I went to college in Orange County and I wanted to go to a place where it was much like people cared a lot more about the world and being politically active. So I moved to DC and ended up staying for 10 years. Um, thought I was gonna be there for a summer um, and ended up staying there for 10 years. So I have a background mainly in um, NGOs and worked for President Obama in the White House, um, helping to run a program that put designers and technologists inside of government and have also worked um, a little bit in the climate change space over the last four years um, at Google X, where I work on policy and strategy type projects um, at the experimental labs at Google. So for me, you know, on a personal note, I grew up drinking tea all the time in my household. Um, Asha and I are both Indian, like most Asian households, it's like a really, you know, big part of our culture and weaved into so many moments um, I remember growing up and there was always sort of like a non-negotiable 4 p.m. tea time that my mom had where we didn't, we couldn't bug her, we couldn't talk to her and we knew exactly what she was doing. And it was a really nice ritual that I had, you know, growing up in my family. When I left my house and went to college and then started working, we, both of us, Ash and I realized that like, this is not the way that most Americans drink tea. So the original spark of Alea kind of came from just wanting to bring this concept of a Indian tea time and the time for slowing down to um, an American market. And with both of our backgrounds in social impact and particularly Ash's background in climate change and sustainability, there were so many opportunities to create a brand that was um, just offering a more sustainable and eco-friendly and um, respectful sort of experience for people that wanted to buy something a little bit different than what you would get um, normally on, on like an average tea bag. So that's sort of where our, that's how the story sort of developed and where our, our idea for, for Alea kind of converged. And 
We've been doing it a little bit differently in that Asha and I both have full-time jobs while we're doing this. We didn't want to take outside funding and we wanted to, you know, be able to grow the company the way we wanted to do it um, without having too much, you know, outside pressure. So it's been a little bit unique than most other big, you know, VC-backed startups that you see in the food and beverage space. But I think with this slow learning, we've, we've, I mean, I wouldn't even say slow learning, the, the slower growth, we've learned a ton. Like neither of us have worked in food and beverage before and we haven't run our, run our own like D2C company. So um, it's been a really like incredible experience um, with lots of twists and turns. And so how do you guys kind of divide the work up? Like, what are you doing for the business and what's Esha doing? We kind of just do both of everything. Like we were, all, it feels like we, we really, like started trying to divide up all of our roles very specifically. So we have this like Excel document where we like write down, you know, who's taking the lead on what. And I think that was actually a good way to create like ownership for different spaces. So um, I've been doing a lot of our marketing and our um, social and sales and a lot of like our, you know, um, how we partner with other companies, this kind of thing in Asha handles our supply chain and logistics and packaging and all of all of like the sort of other side of the house. But I do think that like, because there's two of us and we have one other woman that um, has been working for us part-time, it's, it, there's just a lot more interaction with how we make decisions. We both have to really be excited and on the same page with almost everything. So I would say we either, both of us take like leads on things, but, um, and divide responsibilities, but we're always kind of in touch to make sure that we both agree with the decision. What's something that you um, maybe have encountered that you didn't expect or that you um, were totally thrown off by um, as a result of starting this business? Oh my gosh, we were asked this question before. There's like a list of so many things, Hamilton. I feel I like- I talked about the packaging. I, t I told you know, sure. about like how it took us almost a year to figure out the packaging. Yeah. I think that's something we really didn't anticipate that it was going to take yeah. us that long to figure it out. And yeah. truth be told, we still haven't entirely figured it out. You know, there are tweaks that we would love to do to improve it. And it's just limitations of what the market has, the pricing that exists right now. Um, I think that's one big thing that's been a big learning curve. I think the other learning curve has also just been um, the amount of regulation that's required for a business of our size. Like, you know, we're a small business and the, the regulation, and we completely respect it and understand the reason for it. Um, but there, there is a fair amount of regulation when you're going into food and beverage. And there's not really like a 101 manual. I mean, we all, we kind of joke, we're like, we should write a manual after doing this because um, there's, you know, things that we have gratefully had mentors and friends who've sort of helped us and navigated it for us um, and introduced us to the right folks, but it can be really daunting. Like, I mean, if you don't have people to ask and you don't know where to go, it can be really daunting. So those are two things I know from my operational logistics side, um, I, it was quite a surprise. The other thing, I mean, is that we um, we are trying to really focus on being direct to consumer. Um, we source all of our teas directly from farms. And so for us, it makes sense to sell our product directly to consumers. It cuts out a lot more of like the middle middlemen are along the way. Um, but like that is a new, it's a new and evolving market um, because of we're really trying to change, you know, 
consumer behavior. A lot of people do buy a lot of things online, but you normally may not buy tea online. I think some people are more increasingly buying coffee online um, or doing you know, monthly subscriptions for different food products kind of thing. And of course, COVID has increased that opportunity because people are buying everything online. But I think that transition, um, consumer beha the behavior change piece and really trying to meet where people where they are um, and understand how people make purchasing decisions on something like tea um, has been something that you know we're trying to figure out. On top of that, you know, we're trying to change people's behavior from drinking typically tea bags to like loose leaf tea. And that's been a little bit of like an educational journey. Um, we're really trying to educate people on like where your tea comes from, why loose leaf tea is better, like why it's so much fresher and also better for you and for the environment, the microplastics that are often in tea bags, um, why are they even, why do they exist and why are they bad for you? So, you know, when, when, when most people are used to doing something in a certain way and we're trying to sort of show something that um, could seem a little bit more difficult, but is actually better for you and tastes better. It, it's it, we're kind of on a journey in figuring that out. Yes, yeah, I would just um, add to that. You know, the other surprising thing, Hamilton, is that like we come from tea drinking backgrounds, and then uh, you know, I lived in the UK. That's a tea drinking country. The U.S. has not historically been a tea drinking country, even though tea is the most popular beverage, you know, in the world, more so than coffee. So I think the other learning for us is we did some really casual tea tastings with friends in the beginning as we were testing out this idea, um, is just getting feedback from some of our supporters and some of the folks in our little circles um, and realizing that there is like a lot of space for education. Um, in terms of coffee, this whole uh, direct trade, single origin coffee movement has really taken off in the States. People love their coffee. They take 15 minutes in the morning to like, you know, do a pour over and all that. It hasn't really happened for tea. And we're learning that more and more as we do this is that there's just such a huge opportunity here um, to really connect people to where their tea comes from and how to drink it. Yeah, no, I certainly agree. I think you're spot on. Um, what is one of the most satisfying parts of uh, this journey so far. Um, I know with my stuff, you know, it's always that like idea of someone or, you know, sometimes I'll see someone wearing something that, you know, we put out, which is awesome. You know, that's really satisfying. Um, what about you all? We've been doing online testimonials um, last couple of months. We incorporated that into our website. And normally we would be meeting people in person and doing events in person where we get feedback and people get to, we get to sort of um, get a peek into like how, what teas people enjoy or even how they enjoy drinking them. So the testimonials have, that's been really fulfilling to, for me to see how people enjoy the products that they're purchasing from us um, in really special, unique ways. You know, we had like a mom that submitted a review where she she spent um, a kombucha, one of our DIY kombucha kits to her daughter who lives on the other coast. And she was just saying they FaceTimed when they, when she, when her daughter was opening up the kit and it like, I think she used the words that lessen the heartbreak, the miles of heartbreak in between them. And I almost started crying because it was like a, just um, you don't often get to see that with online transactions. Transactions you don't get to see you know how people are thinking about the tea or even them drinking it or anything like this. So the the individual impact has been really nice. Um, 
The other thing I would add to that is that our tea bags, so this label that's on the front, this was like months in the making of creative uh, brainstorming. And, um, you know, Smita and I had some pretty crazy ideas in terms of what we wanted to do with branding and like really move away from some of the traditional branding you see in the, in the space. Um, so recently we dropped this off uh, a few samples to a potential buyer and she loved the label so much so that she sent us a note saying you should create artwork out of it. I would buy it and hang it up, you know, in my home kind of thing. And I love that compliment because sometimes when you're building a business and you're just in the weeds and you're doing this day in, day out, you know, it's, you're living in that little world going back and forth, putting so much attention and detail and love into it. And to have somebody kind of turn around and appreciate that. And we have gotten a lot of love for the branding, for the packaging. And, you know, this mountain is meant to represent one of the peaks in the area that we source a lot of our tea from. It's uh, the third highest peak in the Himalayan range. And then these are tea estates that are in the front. And so just kind of bringing a little bit more of the origin story to our packaging and our branding. Yeah, it's awesome. See, you got quite a book collection there. It's uh, color-coded. <laughs> what are some- Can I show you something funny? Please. Don't <laughs> <laughs> dare do that on mine because you're going to see all my stuff here. Um, I but... was like, God, I just put everything to the side. It's very Zoom friendly. <laughs> I, learned, I learned a bit of, about that in the past uh, couple of weeks here. But uh, what are some, um, you know, any, and, and you know, I, I know, Ashley, you've got a book on the way. Um, what are some books that people should be reading to kind of get educated on this stuff more and to uh, just kind of help, you know, like, give me, give me some, give me something, give me, give me some uh, recommendations. <laughs> so, okay. What, I mean, there, the thing is, I feel like um, there's so much like depth that you can go so like easy reading there's a few articles if people want to learn a little bit more about um even like microplastics in your tea bags and why regenerative regenerative agriculture is important um i'm actually reading a book right now in the middle of it um about soil health and like why why soil is like critical to our civilization um i'll send you the name of it and the link of it if people want to purchase it um, so I would say like the, the space is, it's, it's so broad, um, everything from like food and cultures and sort of how, you know, if you want to learn about tea culture, where it's origin, where the origins are and the sort of history of tea from China to the British bringing it to India. Um, or if you want to go the direction of like agriculture and yep, that's a really this is good the book. Yeah, yeah, this is the book that we both have been kind of educating ourselves as well yeah. as we delve yeah. into the world of tea. And so this is the story of tea and it's just like a nice big chunky almost encyclopedia on tea. Yep. Okay. And there's also some really fun um, like fiction on on tea um, that that I think that like people would enjoy. I'll send you a list of a couple of books that I like have on my to-do list or ones that I've just finished during quarantine and you can put them up um, for people. 
I can add to that as well because I've got some books lying here. So this is The Responsible Company by Patagonia. This is a um, slightly older book that they, I, I don't know what year exactly this came out, but they've updated it since. And it's a really great overview if you're interested in getting into the space of you know, building a, a sort of responsible business. This is what you were referring to Hamilton's sort of Bible, Let My People Go Surfing. This is an updated edition. Um, this is a recent book that I uh, should know whether or not it's come out, but um, it's by, a Christopher at Yale, and this is really a great book. It's a called a Better Business. I don't know if you can see the cover because it's, yeah. it's dark. Um, but this is, I think, the latest book in this space that we all sort of live in um, and how the B Corp movement is really remaking capitalism. And then another shout out that I would do is this is one of their books. Um, this is a little one called Do Grow. But this is a organization in the UK, and they have something called the Do Series. Um, anybody who's interested in Patagonia, sustainability, all of this stuff, they will really resonate with the Do series. It is also started by sort of an Yvonne-like character in the UK who has a very famous jean company um, out in Wales. And he started kind of like a mini TED community and invited writers and thinkers. And so they actually used to meet in a little shed um, and do a mini TED kind of event. Obviously they can't do that this year, but they have books as well and you can go online. And I love them because they have so many different topics and they're really short and they're really easy. So you don't need to like read a big encyclopedia if you don't want to. Um, but those are some more suggestions. That's awesome. Well, this has been great. Really cool. I have this spice book that I love. Um, and <laughs> breaks down like literally like all, every single spice that like stuff. Like I mean, I just opened it up. I showed a fennel seed, which is awesome because you're gonna have a new tea that's on shake soon with fennel in it. Um, but like, if you're trying to understand, it's called the grammar of spice. If you're trying to understand like where spice ca spice cabinets and all the stuff that you have in your kitchen, probably most people don't even know where it comes from. Same, same with tea. So if you're trying to do a quick understanding of like where your spices come from, like wh what are the origins of it? How, where, what complements each other? What you can add to tea? What, where you should, what you should cook? This kind of thing. The grammar of spice. I love that book. Um, and I'm, there's one other book that I, am, I don't know if you have here. Well, Esha, did you mention your book that's coming out? Yes, Working to okay. Restore. We'll, okay. we'll share a link with that. That's, I think, on Amazon now. Okay, Working um, to Restore. Yes. Because, you know, it's around this word restore, as people are using the word regenerative more and more. Uh, when we were kind of working on developing the book, we were looking at the word restore and restorative. Um, because this kind of gets into a broader discussion that I'm sure you have some very um, poignant thoughts on Hamilton, which is about the word sustainability, you know, and like people feel like that word is just kind of broken. It's not really relevant. What are we trying to sustain? The aim is really to restore, to regenerate, to kind of revive, uh, whether it's the broken capitalistic system or it's the natural world that's really suffered because of our uh, damaging practices. So the word is restore, working to restore in the title. Amazing. Well, it's been a pleasure and an honor to uh, interview you ladies today. I'm really thankful to have you on the show. Where can the listeners follow you and connect with you? So we're on Instagram, um, like most other people these days. Our handle is Alea T, Alea like Himalayas and T. Um, and our website is aleat.co, C-O. So if you, if you subscribe to our newsletter, 
Um, you'll get updates on new teas that we're launching and fun adventures that Esha and I are having and other cool tips and tricks and that kind of thing. Um, those are probably the two best ways to reach out. Perfect. Thanks again. Of course. Great.